You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey everyone, John Wertheim here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated slash Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. Our guest this week, Jimmy Arias, former top five player. But more recently, a few days ago, he was announced as the new Director of Player Development for IMG Academy. The uh, irony here, such as it is, is that uh, Jimmy was one of the first IMG pupils in the late 70s. Went from uh, from his hometown of Buffalo to Florida and... Um, Worked with Nick Balateri, and that uh, began one of the great concentrations of tennis talent uh, in the sports history. So now Jimmy is working with IMG. We talked to him a bit about that, a bit about his coaching at the pro level. Uh, he got into the mental aspect of tennis a lot more than I uh, anticipated he would, but uh, good conversation with a good guy. Former Grand Slam champion, I will have you know. Trivia, which we can uh, get to at the end. Um, what was Jimmy Arias's Grand Slam title? But uh, for now, we will uh, bring him on from Florida, IMG Academy. Here's Jimmy Arias. How are you? Hey. How you doing? I'm good. A little out of breath. Um, Man, do, do I ask hit, why? I'm hitting, I'm hitting with a 10-year-old. I'm having trouble. We're a bad time. We're going to do a podcast while you're hitting with a 10-year-old? I'm hitting with a 10-year-old, and I'm having trouble. That's the main thing. <laughs> I think this The is- kid's pretty rough. This is the first podcast we've ever done with uh, a guest on the court. You're, uh, yeah, exactly. Okay. You you, you finished yeah, um, you finished your I'm lesson. Done. I'm yeah I'm done I'm done. You wanna hang on? Let me talk to him for one second. Just one second. All right. I love his attitude. He's number one. He has his goals. He's the right kind of goal. Now he's just got to be willing to work, which I think he is. So. He's willing to work, so that's all you can do. Just believe. But all right, John. Thank you, Ben. All right, sorry. That was great. That was a. Uh, we, we got a little glimpse of this is what a coaching pep talk is like. That's great. He's willing <laughs> yeah, to work. I like that kid. Yeah, exactly. He's actually amazing. 
I've always thought that I was the best 12-year-old I've ever seen. <laughs> and now I realize I, that's not the case anymore. Because that kid at 10 would have whooped me, I think. Is that right? Yeah, little Canadian kid. Tell He's us. He's like two uh, feet tall and he hits it a million miles an hour. I was going to ask you about. Well, all right, let, let's. Uh, we're going to talk about you first, then we can talk about this crazy sport of tennis. But um, I, I get an email out of the blue last week saying uh, you have a new position, which sounds very impressive. Tell us, tell us what you're going to be doing now. I am the new director of player development at IMG Academy. Um, it's somewhat interesting because I was sort of the first student. That's so right. I started the place in some ways. And, you know, that was 1978, not to be dating myself. So quite a few years later, I end up back here again and kind of doing what I love. I mean, I'm, they have great coaches. I'm impressed with the program. I'm impressed with the kids. Um, I'm a little surprised because I was expecting them to be a little more spoiled than they are. Um, but they all want to learn. They all want to get better. And nothing more rewarding for me than helping someone that wants to get better. That's sort of much fun. And I don't have to do – I'm sort of overseeing. So I don't have a group that I'm in charge of. So that makes it even easier. I can go in and tell them the most important things they need to work on and come back four or five days later and see if they've gotten better. So so how does that work? You, you went down there as talented junior – there's this eccentric coach with uh, an, an Italian last name who's a great motivator and uh, maybe a little less skilled with the X's and O's, but he knows how to wring talent mm-hmm. out of young juniors. We're talking about you and Nick, obviously. How, how does that work now, though? I mean, what's, what's the similarities and differences over the last uh, 40 years? You mean from this place? Or yeah, from... I mean, is, this, is it the same drill with, uh, you know, everyone's got a phone it's, in their pocket, no, or is this no, totally different? Not... It's different. It's yeah. totally different. When I, when it all started, it was more of Nick was the tennis director at the Colony Beach and Tennis Resort, which was the number one tennis resort in, in, the, in the U.S. anyway. It would get voted by Tennis Magazine all the time. Um, but I didn't know who Nick was, and there was no academy. The guy who owned the colony was from Buffalo, which is where I'm from originally. So that's how I ended up yeah, there on, the, on a tennis. I ended up there on a tennis vacation with a bunch of Buffalo tennis players that used to play with me. And Nick got a look at me and saw that I had a different forehand than what everyone else was hitting in those days. I was 12 and hitting it hard, swinging. So Nick got excited, invited me down, told me he had a school that lets us out at noon, um, which in those days there was no homeschooling. And I was going to school till 4 o'clock like everyone else. So... That was nice, and I got to get away from my crazy tennis parent dad, which was also nice. Um, so I came and I talked to the top 10 kids and top 20 kids in the nation in the 16s. I went to Kalamazoo when I was 13 and talked to those guys, and Paul Anacone was one of them. Okay. But 10, 10 of them at least came, and all of a sudden Nick had the top juniors, the top American juniors, all in one place. He started getting publicity for it, and you know, eventually it's turned into what it is now. But when we were, when we started, it was more of just, we'd do a couple of drills. We only had a couple courts. So it would be eight on a court. And 
you hit two balls and run to the end of the line and then run in place for five minutes so it's your turn to hit two balls and then at the end of the day we'd play a little bit we'd when the guests were done at the colony we'd play some sets so you know we were competitive with each other now it's unbelievably professional there's we still have groups like we did and you want to get everybody wants to move up in their to the next group so there's always that sort of underlying competition but at the same time i've never seen so far i've been here three weeks i've never seen more than three people on a court and a lot of one-on-one so there's enough coaches to take care of the 200 plus kids and the other beauty of this is there's always going to be players that are your level a little better and a little worse right so you sort of get the gamut of practicing with all those different levels. 200 kids plus ages. Now, plus, now, now, plus now there's there's the physical side. There's the mental conditioning. They've got everything. The uh, injury prevention and training. And I mean, when I play, I just go on the court, go play. Yeah, exactly. It's not the same sort of level of scientific work <laughs> to make you the best athlete you could possibly be. And this is cutting edge here I, I always think it's so funny when you go down there and you see you know C- cam newton's working out and there are players that are trying to get ready for the combine and you think this is all what nick Terry started with uh a bunch of ragtag tennis players with their you know prince bags and their thermoses and now uh you've, you've got That's players what from it, was. it seems impossible it does, it does seem impossible i have to say and the other side of campus not the tennis side uh, right, is right, right. a co- is a college dorm. I mean, I've never. It's unbelievable. It's so nice, like the everything, all the facilities. I mean, when we were here, when it first started, the uh, the food was some, you know, was rough to deal <laughs> with, and uh, that's all changed as well. So, well, what's the you know, quite uh, a place. You said two hundred kids. What's what's the age range on that? Probably ten to to eighteen. I mean, there's, there might be a few eight-year-olds even, but it's mostly 10 to 18. So of those kids, how much – Yeah. I mean, I, I guess sort of what, as, as we like to say, well, what, what's the delta? I mean, how, how much sort of uh, room for improvement is there? I mean, how much better can you get? How much like, – the kids are at the top of the ladder as 14-year-olds. What, what are the odds that they are top of the ladder as 16-year-olds? How much sort of variability is baked into that? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's, there's quite a bit of variability because sometimes you're great in the 14th, let's say, just because you're big. Right. And you're a little stronger. Right. And you're, but your skills aren't quite there. Your speed's not quite there. And when people get fast enough. So there's a lot of variables. And the other thing that's difficult for me is when you are great at 12, you sense and feel. I, I went through this a little bit, so I, I know the feeling. When you're 12 and the 12 nineers, I was beating everyone 6-1, six, 6-1, one, six, one, even in the Nationals. I was killing everybody. But then when those same kids, I always thought I would just kill them all the whole time. Why not? Right. But when you're 18, some of them suddenly became six foot three, with 130-mile-an-hour serves. And all of a sudden, it's not, I can't beat them 6-1, six, one, six, one anymore. And you can feel people catching up. Um, what's, that, what's that like? That, it's not a good feeling. You're feeling that pressure of I'm supposed to be better than this guy. I mean, I remember my dad, I lost in the pros to Jim Grab. I don't know if you remember Jim Grab. Yeah, doubles player. 
Yes, doubles player. Um, but he got to probably 30 in singles. So I lost to Jim Grab 6-6 six and six in Washington, D.C., and I called my dad, and he goes, he couldn't even carry your shoes in the 12 and unders. Um, <laughs> he was so mad at me. But that was sort of the pressure I was always feeling of, you know, this is a kid in my age group that couldn't get games off me, and now all of a sudden I'm struggling against him. So that part makes it – that's why you don't see – off that often, the top 12-year-olds, sort of, they're not necessarily the guys that, that are the top pros. Tell us, I, I didn't know anything so, about this. Tell, tell us more about your dad. You do, you do a good, uh, you do an impersonate. Tell us more about your dad, because I, I, that sort of leads to my next question for you. Yeah, to, about my dad? Well, my dad was basically, he, he got very involved with my tennis. He didn't know anything about tennis when I was seven years old. By the time I was nine years old. He knew everything. And he's the one who taught me the forehand. Um, it was different. I took a lesson from a guy named Ian Fletcher, who had made fourth round of the Australian Open. And he was in Buffalo because he married a Buffalo girl. And he had me with a continental grip, taking the racket straight back, pointing the follow through. And my dad didn't know anything about tennis at that point, but I come off the court. He's from Spain, so he has an accent. I said, Dad, what do you think? He goes, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard in my life. <laughs> How can you swing full speed and stop? That means you're slowing the racket down when you're in the hitting zone. Just let it go. So that was sort of the start of he just wanted me to relax my arm right. and swing as hard as I could, and someday I would be able to control it. Now, the problem was once I started winning, he, he, it became not just I better win, but I better win by certain scores. And you know, he put a lot of pressure from that standpoint. And there's part of me that's very thankful because I think – that's the reason I was able to do as well as I did. And I feel like players today, one of the things it created for me was the ability, because I knew I better win and I better win every point, it created the ability in me to be intense with my feet. I needed to, to be ready and to move. And that's the biggest difference I see with the kids that are going to be good and, and the kids – that are That's just going to play college. Yeah, right. They all hit the ball nice, but it's this innate intensity with their feet that even when I tell certain kids, you're not there. You're only running as fast as you have to to get to the ball rather than get into the best spot quickly. Right. Um, you know, and, and they it doesn't change. And the good kids are just automatically, their feet are zipping. So that to me is the biggest tell. That's interesting. On whether a player's going to make it. That every, everyone's got it's, the strokes, but it's all who's, yeah. who's getting to them. That's interesting. Who's in position to hit those strokes the most often and who's putting themselves in the best spot. That's why this 10-year-old I was just hitting with. Right. I mean, it's unbelievable. See, he looks like a little pro. He's literally four foot one, <laughs> But his feet are flying, and he's taking the ball early and – like we played three points and he got to net on all three of them and hit drop volleys at four foot one. Yeah, nice. I probably should a lot. He'd beat Jim Grab six one six one. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna ask you for name because <laughs> I, I. I feel like one of the. Uh, I feel like one of the sins of this sport is saddling these kids with uh, expectation. But the the reason I asked about your dad is because when I was, um, I was a few years ago. But but when I was at the academy for a story a few years ago, I was blown away by the parental presence and what was clear to me was a lot of kids from all over the world i mean not just upstate new york but from you know south korea they had come as a family and i left wondering what the impact of that 
whole, whole family moves to Florida, that to me is, is an interesting dynamic on a kid, and that is a level of pressure that I'm not sure you necessarily get in team sports. How, how are you dealing with the, the family dimension to, to all this? Um, you're right. It is, it is a difficult situation because a lot of the – and it was a little bit with my dad. It's sort of like the parents – are vicariously living through their child's tennis career and they take the losses and wins even more personally than, than the player does. And that's, that's a bit, that that's an extra level of pressure that the kid doesn't probably need. Um, you know, and you're right. There are a lot of parents around back in my day when we started here, there were no parents. I don't know if Nick didn't let them here. Not sure, but no parents showed up. They all just sent their kids. Um, so that part has changed quite a bit. It makes it, you know, a little more intense for the teaching pro too, for the coaches. Just yeah, because exactly. they get exactly. someone w- right. looking over them all the right. time and they're going to complain if they think their kid hasn't played with someone of his level or whatever. So that makes it a little more difficult, but so far it's been pretty good. I haven't noticed anything. Are you still, uh, you know, we're, we're supposed to be neutral and objective, but I have to confess you, you coach one of my favorite players. Are you still um, are you still able to coach individual players, or is the WTA player you were working with uh, looking for a new aide to camp right now? Well, I mean, you're ta- are you talking about Jesse Pagula? Yeah, exactly. Yes, um, she was always with Jesse Levine, right. and I was more of a consultant. And I'm not allowed to. I'm not really allowed to work with her unless she comes here. Um, which she might for a little bit of the off season. So she's still going to spend some time with me and I still talk with her on the phone, but, but uh, the relationship for now is, uh, I guess, somewhat on hold. Gotcha. Career Unfortunately, high. Cause she, I'm looking this up. Career high, number 112 I, right now. Yeah, I know. And she's going to, if she keeps going the way she's going, she's going to be top 50. So she's, she's on the way. She's moving better. She's doing a lot of things better in the last, six months. So I, I hope it continues. She's been a little fragile sort of physically. So that's the part that worries me as far as, you know, if she's injury free, top 50. Gotcha. Am I, uh, I'll, I'll, when, when, when we're done, I'll, I'll say why. I mean, I, are, are you with me? This is a player to root for. I mean, I, I was talking to someone about her. We'll just be totally candid. Her Father and, and mother, her, her parents own the Buffalo Bills, and uh, her, her father is a fracking magnate, big Penn State hockey player. And I, I always thought that it really spoke well of her that she would take this individual sport and sleep at the Red Roof Inn at these small events. And the, I mean, it's 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 brutal playing these challengers, and she could have a much easier life than she does. And she's chosen to uh, to compete and see how good she can be at this sport. I, I find her. Uh, very admirable. You, you are spot on. I got to say. I mean, I've she, she's brought sort of she brought for me joy back to teaching and helping because she's somebody the exact same thoughts I had while I'm working with her. She's working hard. She doesn't have to. She doesn't ever have to work if she doesn't want to. And you know, she's toiling at 400 in the world when I started. Right. Um, and playing as you said. $15,000 tournaments and with three people watching that's not glamorous and she's got amazing character for for a billionaire's daughter got to give her that it's it's yeah I really I'm hoping and 
praying that she continues doing well because she deserves it. Top fifty. What what is this? Uh, what is this new position? Can can I ask? What does this mean for your uh, your extraordinary tennis channel work? Can we figure out a way to uh, keep you in the mix? <laughs> well, that's one of the reasons I took the job is they are happy to have me whenever I get a tennis channel gig to take it. So oh, good. Okay. Oh, that that sort of that sort of worked out nice. That was the only way it was going to work. I think it was a sort of a funny. The first the first day when I got the. Uh, invite to come meet with the CFO of IMG. I knew he wanted to maybe talk to me about working here. And I said to him, look, before we get started, this is probably not the best way to go through a job interview, by the way. But I said, <laughs> yeah, here's what before I we get started, before we get started let me tell you my philosophy on life. My philosophy is least amount of work, most amount of money. Um, and IMG, from what I've seen over the years, it's kind of the opposite. You work the guys hard, you don't pay them that well. So I have no idea how this is going to work out, but go ahead. What do you got? And it turned out to be just fine. <laughs> so, so, and I'm enjoying it. Yeah, that's that's an interesting approach to a job interview. Um, yeah, you know, like, when, when he asked exactly. you what your weaknesses were, you know, you're not supposed to say uh, bad hygiene. <laughs> I don't want to work. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah um, I know, I know. <laughs> But the truth is, actually, in, in my defense, is now that I'm here, no one's looking over my shoulder, but I find myself staying here from 8 a.m. I get here at 8 a.m. and I leave at 5. That's it's a long day. freaking day for yeah, me, exactly. for a guy that's never worked before. Come on. You were top five in but the I'm world. Let's it. work. Um, let's, uh, let's talk a little tennis in November of 2018. Um, we just kind of sort of finished up our season. We still have Davis Cup uh, left to go. Uh, we, a little bit of a weird year in tennis, wouldn't you say? Uh, no question. I mean, you had certain players like Djokovic and Jack Sock that halfway through the year, I was thinking both these guys are going to be ranked outside the top 100. <laughs> and I was putting Djokovic in that list because he basically wasn't winning any matches, and he had a boatload of points to defend. Yeah, right, right. After after the French, so I was like, "This, he's." I didn't think he'd be outside the top hundred, but I thought he's going to be ranked like forty in the world, and he's going to quit tennis at that point. Um, but I was obviously wrong with Djokovic. Not really as wrong with Sock. He finished outside the top hundred, even though he had a nice, nice little move in Paris. Defended reasonably well. That means uh, to at least, yeah, to give him a chance for next year. But uh, it's been an interesting year. I, I'm surprised at the way Djokovic was able to finish the year after looking so shaky to start. I, it, really for me, shaky, right? When I lost my confidence, right. I never really, I never really got it back. I played for another eight years, but it wasn't. It was never the same. I couldn't find that. I'd have glimpses of playing well, but then it would go away again. And that's the part that's amazed me about all three of. Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer. At some point in their career, Federer, remember when he was suddenly shanking everything and he was changing rackets? Yeah, exactly. Shankasaurus. He, he kinda, and, right. Yeah, couldn't play, really. He right. was not Roger Federer, and he got it back. And Nadal also has had moments in his career where, you know, he's hitting the ball in the service line slow and high. That doesn't usually work that well. And all of a sudden, he got it back, and now... Djokovic has done it as well. So obviously these greats, these all-time greats, have the ability to 
to recapture the magic. What do you do when that? I mean, I remember you and I, I, I think we talked about this even on the air once. You said, listen, pe- people look at me and they say, oh, he, you know, didn't have the big powerful serve and he wasn't a six foot five inch, you know, physical presence. And you, you said, no, no, that's what it was. That's not what it was with me. With me, I had a great year and then my confidence was misplaced. And it was as much about self-belief as it was about hitting the ball or not hitting the ball. What, what do you do about that? Well, what do you do? I, that's the that's the magical question to me. I'm not sure of the answer. I would have tried it. Um, I did try certain things that they teach you. And, you know, I went to Jim Lair when I started losing my confidence. And he told me I should do routines. And that after every point, I have to look at my strings and move my strings. Um, and I remember, okay, I'm playing my first match. And I'm looking at my string, moving it, saying to myself, not sure what moving my strings doing for my forehand. My forehand's still going out. <laughs> like, like that that didn't work for me. Right. Um, so, you know, the confidence thing to me is something that comes from winning. And once you stop winning, it's hard to, to find that confidence again. Um, but I guess these guys are so – they're just – they're a level better than everybody else. The three guys the three I mentioned. Guys, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so at some point they're going to win again just – because they're better, and once they've won four or five matches, then they they feel like they're back, I guess. You know, and I was never that much better than everyone. So once I lost the confidence, I didn't didn't really get the wins like I had before. I just, you know, you you see this unfolding. I think it's one of the rare sports where you know there's there's nowhere to hide. It's not like you can pass up that jumper, and, and you don't really. I mean, it's you're you're out there, and you're either hitting that forehand or you're not. You're either winning or you're losing. Um, I you, you see this unfolding with other players. You know, you you mentioned Jack Sock, and yeah. you can just see the way he's playing at four all the forehands he's missing late in the set that he was making earlier in the set. It, it's one of the enduring mysteries of this sport. Yeah, um, and it's yeah, it just shows you how important that aspect of the game, the mental side of the game, is. And people don't recognize it. In the, on the pro level, everyone hits the ball great, especially now. At least in my era, people had weaknesses you could try to get to. Right. Today's guys, you don't see any obvious weaknesses other than they might miss a few more. So it comes down to who believes in those big moments. And I can just, from experience, the first 10 tie breaks in the final set that I played, I was 10-0. and 0. And I thought I was going to win every time. Like, I would go into the tie break not nervous because I knew the end result is I'm going to win. And then I lost 10 in a row after that when I lost my confidence. Just to give you an idea. So it's all with Sock, you're right. He's just losing the big points. He still looks so dangerous. He's such a great athlete. I mean, it's amazing watching him play. Right. But he seems to fall apart this year, at least, at the big moments in matches. And can he get that back? I think he might be. He, he needs to work harder. He's been hanging around too much with Nick Kyrgios, in my mind. So, so socially, yeah, no, I mean that's that's what um, the the other thing you hear and about I think him. If is, he works, yeah. if he right. works hard, then he'll maybe because he's put in the effort on the on practice and training, he'll fight to the end a little bit better. Just you know, it's easier when you haven't been working hard to to give it up. I think, but 
he's going to have to he's going to have to turn that around this year. He's not going to have much pressure. He doesn't have any points to defend. The the points have so. fallen off. Uh, you know, it's like it's like dandruff on an old man. I mean, those points have drifted <laughs> off already. But the other thing too is he he can't go too much further. He's not going to. He's going to be playing qualifying. I mean, exactly. You, you, you can say like, nothing to defend. He, then the, does he become a double specialist? Because he's you know he's going to try to go make the money playing the Masters one thousands, but he can't get in. Right. any of them right. so it's just going to be double I mean, that's the danger of that i don't know if he's gonna i think he'll probably not concentrate on doubles and go ahead and keep trying in singles he needs a uh he needs a new doubles partner too as, as long as you brought so i mean take us in there obviously it's going to be different player to player but it's your confidence is fractured you're you're one of these players who's doesn't have the self-belief that he once did and it's you know it's, it's for all on the breaker what is the conversation with yourself like I mean what is it is it fear is it dread is it self-loathing I mean what are you telling yourself when you don't have confidence that is different than when you do it's it's fear it's the sort of the doubt of I remember like I told you first 10 tie break in the thirds I knew I was going to win so right. I, nothing bothered me um when I lost that confidence if I got a bad call or if what I thought was a bad call or a bad bounce or anything like that, I would start telling myself, see, this is why you're not winning. No, you, you can't get any luck. Blah, blah, blah. Like you start looking at outside things to, to sort of take away the pressure, but you're looking for excuses on why you lost. And once you start searching for a reason why you lost before the match is over, you've lost. Yeah, exactly. You might as well shake hands. Exactly. So, um, and that's, that at least was what was happening to me. I'd start looking for an excuse to tell my dad I lost because and as soon as I did that in a match, that was it. Right. I should right. have just walked up and shook and shook hands with the guy. Did Did you watch any of the matches from uh, London? The Not ATP? too many, actually. I mean, I I just I couldn't get over the so it's you know it's it's indoor surface and it's it's only eight guys and there but to, to me what really set it apart from a conventional event was this round-robin format. And you forget this whole business in tennis of w one loss and you're out of the tournament. You know, it's, it's not like you shoot a bad round on Thursday and you can make it up on Friday, or it's not like you, you know, you're, you're in the NBA and you got you got 82 games. Seeing this round-robin format and realizing how different that is from, you know, win or go home. It, yeah. It's a it's rough, actually it's interesting. A rough it, business, it, it, man. It, 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 it changes it everything. Is. It's though. fun at the end. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's fun at the end because it's coming down to sets and games and all that sort of right. stuff. By the way, I didn't see it, but what? How did Kaden Ishikori lose zero one? After uh, after you, beating Fetter, I yeah, that, that's one of the matches that match? I, I, I did not see that. You know, match. it's funny. I was following that match on my phone, and I thought, oh, he must be hurt, and he just doesn't want to retire, and he's playing it out. Yeah. That didn't seem to be the case. I, from what I heard, guy just couldn't hit the ball on the court, and that and that came forty eight hours after beating Fetter. So uh, that's amazing. Yeah, I I am G zone. Amazing. Um, all right, 2019 speed round, real quick. Uh, how many how many okay. majors does Djokovic win? The guy the guy who you thought was going to be outside the top hundred uh, 90 days ago, that guy Djokovic. How many uh, <laughs> how many majors does he win next year? Next year? Yeah, he he wins. He wins two. Who wins the other two? I'm giving him two. Uh, well, you gotta you can't go against Nadal at the French, right? And I don't know. I think somebody will come up with something. And I don't know who the answer is. It could be Zverev if he finally learns how to play under pressure, which 
meaning I've seen him get tight at different times, and he seems to get tight in the majors. But he certainly has the game, as he showed in London, to, to make that breakthrough. Some of those young up-and-coming guns, who knows, Hatchinoff, Tsitsipas, uh, you know, I think one of them might have their moment in the sun. Um, Probably at the U.S. Open. You think? Really? Yeah. Well, because I think, I think the French is, you know. French is Nadal. Yeah, right, of, right, right. Write that yeah, off. Yeah, it feels like it's Nadal and Dominic team. Right. And Wimbledon, at least the way last year went, it feels like that's Djokovic. Or Federer, maybe a Federer, you know, gets hot for those two weeks. Um, but the U.S. Open, it's the end of the year. The guys are a little tired. Um, I could see someone making a breakthrough. Australia as well, because it's the first slam of the year and it's hot and, you know, anything can happen. Yeah, I, I always feel like Australia, in the end, these veterans, you know, and in the big three, they, they just, A, they're better at the off season. I mean, Federer is a master at starting strong and having yeah, a real true. training camp. And I also just think, especially at the beginning of the year when you haven't had any before and you haven't paced yourself, this best of five is really tough for uh, – for younger players, yeah, um, in the heat, yeah, in the heat, yeah, True. exactly, in the heat. It's some, you know, it's 105 degrees on a middle Saturday, and it takes some experience yeah. to know how to ration your energy. Um, what, what about women's side? Uh, Serena Williams does what in 2019? Oh, man, that's tough. I mean, I still feel like she's the player to beat whenever she shows up. Um, which I guess I could you could say the same about Djokovic the way he ended the year. So maybe I'll just give her two slams as well. All right, that's uh, that would put her over the top. That would be a that would be a new record. Um, <laughs> so so someone I suspect you will see in Bradenton. Uh, what, what do we expect from Naomi Osaka? Uh, of Naomi Osaka? Yeah, I think she. See, the problem is when I've seen her play, the only two times I've seen her play, she was amazing. Indian Wells <laughs> in the U.S. Open. I mean, Good samples. those are the main yeah. two times that I watched her. Right. And I'm thinking she's she's Serena Williams except younger right. now, the way right. she plays. She hits right. the ball huge, hits a big second serve, moves really well, um, you know, and hits, hits, hits big, is overpowering, is intimidating. So that – Naomi Osaka could be the next number one in my mind, but I don't know what happens the other. I was going to say, if you're, if you're basing it on those two tournaments, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it's hard. Yeah, it's hard for me to, to because I didn't see her play the tournament. She wasn't doing well, and I don't know what happens when she loses. Did she just start missing? That's what she I would can hit to the me, ball. Like, well, and, and there's some sort of crisis of confidence moments too. But no, I mean, I think uh, I, I think it's a really good sign that she played pretty well after the U.S. Open. Wasn't like she. Yeah, uh, me too. Um, but I, are you going to have much interaction with the pros? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Nishikori, Osaka. I mean, there, there are a number of players who I suspect are going to be on the court next to you pretty soon. Yes. No, I will have some interaction with the pros as well. But most of the pros come with with their coaches. So, you know, I'll be out there a little bit with them. Um, but I don't want to step on any anybody's toes. And that's sort of. Even within the program, a lot of the times I go to the coach, the group leader first, when I see something with a kid that I think this needs to be changed. Right. I don't, I don't go to the kid. I go to the coach. And 
we talk it over and he'll tell me where this kid's come from. Maybe that's too advanced for where he is right now. You know, I, I leave it up to the coach a little bit. And that's the same thing I would do with the, with the pros. That's good management right there. Um, so last question, what is the ideal number of team cups in men's tennis? Zero, <laughs> one, two, or three? <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's a hard answer because I would say one, except I thought the Laver Cup was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Yeah, right. So, right. and you know, and I, I obviously the Davis Cup because I, when I was a kid growing up, the Davis Cup was, was basically as big as any major. You know, that's the one thing you definitely saw on TV was right. the Davis Cup tie, um, and so I have a special place sort of in my heart for Davis Cup, but it has lost a little of its luster over the years. And like I said. I love the Labor Cup. It was I, it was so much fun watching the guys in what is essentially an exhibition be so into it that they're getting nervous. They're getting tight. Um, it was it was great to see. That and was, the atmosphere uh, was amazing. Yeah, well, I mean, I I think everyone says atmosphere is amazing, and you over if if you were there and you said, "My gosh, it's a Tuesday afternoon, and these fans are going crazy." Crazy, yeah. I, I, it was the best. It was. I've never had the chills more often from crowd noise than I did at the Labor Cup. I right, mean, right. however, with eighteen thousand or whatever was there, they were making a lot of noise. We were saying and too. The matches sort of lived up to it. So. The, the matches were great. The teams, you know. The, but I also said it's with an indoor event. It's not like half the crowd is. You know, sometimes you see these events and the main stadium is you know 30 percent full because the fans are strolling the grounds and they're in the food court and they're looking at matches on the ground you know they're watching doubles there's only one match so if you have an indoor venue when the match starts that's where the action is it's not as though half the fans are out on the plaza um yeah exactly all right this was great we've hit our uh we hit our half hour go there, there's a 10 year old on the court next to you who needs your wisdom uh don't let us don't let us <laughs> keep right. you from generating the from uh the next generation but uh, this was great always a pleasure Awesome. Thanks, John. All right. Thanks, Jimmy. Take, Take care. care. We'll see ya. Take care. All right. Thanks to Jimmy, one of the uh, sports good guys. Congratulations on his new gig at the IMG Academy. The answer to that question, by the way, French Open Mixed Doubles 1981, partnered with Andrea Yeager. That was Jimmy Arias' Grand Slam title. Uh, Jamie Lasanti, our uh, trusty producer, bring you in. You listen to that back. conversation. Thanks. It's been uh, It's been an interesting week. Nice to be back. Not as jet lagged as I thought I would be. Um, good conversation with Jimmy Arias. What uh, what struck you? Yeah, I uh, I thought it was interesting how he was talking about the difference between uh, you know when he was there versus now he's on the other side uh, coaching, and he was talking a little bit about kind of not having the same scientific level of training and just everything they do to prepare for the game and to get better. Uh, I was, you know, kind of some of the stuff was new to him. And I was, I was kind of curious, you know, I wonder if he, uh, if that changes how he coaches, you know, does he kind of coach based on how he was coached when he was younger, when all these things didn't exist or um, has he adapted things um, from the new methods and ways of training uh, since he's been there? So I I mean, do you think that's something all coaches work with? I would even go further. You could even expand that to sort of anyone in a position of authority, that at some level we're all products of our experiences. You know what worked and what didn't work, but you also want to innovate at the same time. It's yeah. an interesting kind of push-pull, especially for someone, you know, I don't know, Jimmy, probably early 50s. It's interesting uh, 
Interesting tension there. Um, I, it's funny too because he's not—he's not a big guy. I don't know if you know him. I mean, he was got to number five in the world. Um, boy, I don't know. He must have been nineteen, twenty. I mean, a young kid. He must have been nineteen, twenty years old. He got to number five in the world. Uh, French Open quarterfinalist, I believe. And then he sort of stopped progressing. And I, I always had assumed it was just not a big guy, didn't have the weapons, scrappy player. Maybe his body gave out. I didn't realize the extent to which it was confidence-based. Interesting to hear him uh, talk so candidly about that. Yeah, I love the thing about playing with the racket and kind of developing a ritual. Uh, I feel like I read a lot about people trying to tell you whether it's in sport or in life on how to kind of maximize your potential and, you know, live to the fullest and all this stuff. And some of it is, I think, very good and it really does help. And some of it, uh, I kind of do the same thing as he did standing there, you know, fiddling with his strings, like, what the hell is this going to do for me? And, uh, you know, maybe this, this one isn't really for me. So I thought that was fun and, uh, interesting. The power of habit. Um, no, I mean, I think, Nadal is always an interesting right. case study in that too. Yeah, maybe takes it to a, a certain extreme, but people <laughs> people ask him about it, and he sort of says these these rituals are important to me. These habits are important to me. Um, let me. You want to you want to talk about the sort of topic du jour in tennis these days? Surely. I don't know. I mean, at least in in my silo, and I think this is one of the issues of this social media age. This is a larger topic, but I don't know if you have this as well. You have, you have a hard time figuring out what's important uh, objectively and is world? it only in my little yeah. silo world where it's it's tennis it's media it's right. some tv stuff and then i talk about it with my wife and she said oh i've, I've never even heard about that right well um, we create our own little exactly. circles here so uh oh cheryl sandberg i mean <laughs> no i mean i think i think there's a really broader point to be made here i think it makes it very hard we talk about connections of social media but i think there also is this element of detachment where you're in your own island and something that you and I are debating back and forth with and there are a million you know, Twitter battles and then you talk to the person next to you and they've, they've never even heard of it. No idea. Not just me. Well, in your circle. Uh, in my circle. This <laughs> issue of uh, Julian Beneteau, Roger Federer, preferential treatment, Tennis Australia. Again, I, um, I'm open to certainly the suggestion and the possibility that uh, not as big a deal as it, it seems to be in my world, but this did seem to trigger quite a bit of uh, chatter. And, and, you know, Roger Federer, was asked about it multiple times mm-hmm. in London. Um, this obviously, and you can look this up, there was a, a radio interview and then a summation of that interview where Julian Beneteau, who just recently retired, who, uh, I don't know if this is this is irony or if this stands to reason, but this is someone who knew Roger Federer for 20 years, you know, when they were teenagers playing in the juniors. So these two know each other quite well. And the the assertion was essentially that if rules aren't broken, they are sure bent to accommodate uh Roger Federer, and he he benefits from, uh, I, I, I guess we'll crassly call it preferential treatment, but I, I think it was an interesting sort of glimpse into some of uh, tennis's darker arts. Yeah, I agree. I thought, um, you know, I kind of agree with you on when there's financial payment involved, if, if we're talking about that side of things, that preferential treatment, that may not be so good. But in terms of scheduling, I think it brings up kind of an interesting thing with tennis because it is very unique where you know you're not having six NFL games in one day you know or you don't have to schedule these things in a, in a stacked way where you're trying to get most people to come in and watch and most people to watch on TV and so on the on the one side you know they do move games uh for primetime reasons right primetime exists for a reason right. and so i think 
on one side of the coin, you have that where it's like, all right, we want to put Roger Federer on primetime. So that's the reason why he's always playing on, you know, at night at the U.S. Open or whatever the case may be. Uh, I get that. The other thing is that I do believe that if Federer were to say, I want to play during the day, which I think he did in a recent tournament where it, it was, I, I don't recall exactly. Yeah, he's, but he's said that before. The so US he's, Open, sometimes right, it's he's a sort kid's of thing. made a request. Right. and. And it's more often than not honored. And I think that's when it gets a little weird. Uh, and f- I think for people outside of tennis, they would d- say for sure that is favoritism. And, you know, why can't somebody else get that treatment? Um, but yeah, if you, I mean, if you're the tournament director and you're getting a lot of money from TV, they're paying a lot of money to right, air your cool. matches. And you say, oh, it's a night match. And they say, we want Federer. And you say, no, I've got to give you. Philip Kohlschreiber. Well, why do you have to do that? Well, Rogers played too many. Well, that's night why matches. I said I think there's a difference between prime time and you're talking about ticket sales and and viewership and ratings and all that stuff, which brings in and and honestly that brings in the money conversation. But right. when you're talking about a random match in the middle of the day or or court placement or something like that, um, I think there are some bending of the rules in tennis that happens to top players that maybe a younger lesser known player right. may not get the same benefits but you know maybe is that just the benefit of someone who's been around longer i mean that happens in a regular workplace you know yeah, there's exactly. there are people who have been at companies for years and they surely get more benefits and have things that i don't or oh, other Jamie. people don't no i don't mean that in You're a bad way but well that's regarded here that's that's how things work i feel like right. that's sort of just the way of life so um yeah, yeah, I it's, see it both sides. It's debatable. I mean, I think I think this issue of listen, it's hot as Hades out here, and this guy gets to play every single match in seventy-two degrees at night. I I get that, but I also see it from the tournament's perspective, which is, what are we supposed to do? It's it's not like we're giving him the the you know, it's not like we're creating a special session. Someone's got to play at night. Why right, wouldn't right. we give the session to the guy who everybody uh, wants to watch play? Um, no, I I think what got a little bit lost in that story, and I th- I think tennis Australia deserves. In, in some ways, they deserve some credit for uh, pushing the envelope and, and enterprising, and they really have tried to move beyond just being a federation or a group that runs a tournament for two weeks a year. They've really tried to branch into media and production, but, boy, some of those ties are awfully cozy. And I suspect if uh, sort of the, the emoluments department, if you ran ran that by the guys in um, in the compliance group, that might not pass conflict of interest uh, muster. But, and, and um, Craig Tiley responded kind of to this a little bit. Yeah. But I his could... yeah his his response was very uh, blanketed as sort of like kind of blaming the or pointing to marketing and primetime and, and TV and kind of also saying, well, we listen to our players because of, you know, we ask them what food they want and where they want to park and what they want to do when they come to our tournament and, you know, they get treatment in, in that sort of way. And I didn't know if yeah, that but was... Should, should Tennis Australia, and I would say the same thing to the USTA, should they be involved in a private for-profit event put on by a player? No, that's what I was saying. I mean, that's where I, I things thought, got a little bit God, God bless sticky. you for serving sushi, but I don't think that's the right. that's the issue here. Um, Anyway, ah, tennis. Um, <laughs> it really is unlike anything. It's like, unlike, I mean, it's I, the point I always make is if they were going to start this sport tomorrow, we're going to come up with a business model that really optimizes value and that really traffics in fairness and that really runs stands clear of any antitrust. It would look nothing like 
the product you have out there right now. How would you so if you know if players weren't able they created a rule. Players are not able to request certain schedules, certain courts. Uh, I don't I want to play at night. Sorry, we don't we're not accepting requests for right. when you want to play. How would you how would you organize well, it? I th- how would I think, it get I mean to me that's that's sort created? of a small sliver of the greater conflicts of interest and sort of the <laughs> of course structural flaws of tennis. But I think with that it's very simple. You just put a cap on it, right? And sort of we, we get it. We get that there are some commercial demands here. We get that there's something transactional about this. We understand the fans want to see Roger Federer. They don't want to see him buried at court 17 at Tuesday at 2 o'clock. But at a Grand Slam, the maximum number of night sessions you get is four. And you have to play a secondary court at least once, which I think, you know, the French Open does that. Some some tournaments are better than others. I, I think the way you handle that just is you just, just put a cap. Look, we're not going to draw out of a hat. We're not going to have the night session be two qualifiers. Nobody knows. But right. the flip side is when, especially in a tournament like the Australian Open, when conditions, temperature, heat, right, durability, right, when right. those are such issues, it does seem a little strange to have one player play six of the seven matches it is uh, it's just the, the problem is that everything is so subjective the conditions are subjective when people want to play is subjective some players may excel right. at night some players may want to play during the exactly. day um you know the actually just the deciding on what matches get played on what courts is subjective i mean the we wait for we set we sit at majors and we wait for the schedule to come out the next day we know who's playing but the schedule and where people where That's you have to go the, uh, you know it, and so somebody else like some overlord is is creating right. that and so that's I'm telling all you, of that stuff is subjective and it just kind of you know what what are they thinking about when they're deciding who gets to play on court 17 and who plays on you know hey i flew in a town from europe and i wanted to watch steph curry and the warriors play because i love steph curry well what time's the game i don't know it depends what time the orlando magic finish and then after that maybe the san antonio spurs will go long so we're not sure well is he playing on tuesday or wednesday yeah i don't know it depends when the (laughs) tournament gives him a start oh no if he loses he's out and he's on a jet home um tennis asks a lot of its fans i would uh i would put it that way but yeah the lack of a um concrete start time or finishing time for that matter hey how long is this match gonna right. be well it could be 90 <laughs> minutes and it could be five hours we're not sure um, so you're on your yeah. third banana waiting exactly. for the uh waiting for your <laughs> match to start that's why we love the sport um <laughs> other uh other topics we have we have a davis cup coming up which i think um sentimentally is the last davis cup in this uh this current format, um, France and Croatia. We have uh, the w- women's game is in the f- in the freezer for. Uh, I mean, I, I credit women's <laughs> tennis. They they I got like this that. thing over and done with. They get uh, a full eight weeks of an off season. I did think that Sasha Zverev complaining about the length of the season, which I, I think he was completely entitled to do, and I think Kafelnikov was way off base taking issue with that. But uh, Zverev complaining about the length of the season, but then finishing stronger than anyone and. Uh, Beating Federer and Nadal, you yeah, exactly. <laughs> you think uh, you think you're going to chase me off? Um, good weekend for for Sasha Zverev. I, I do wonder, and I think it's it's an open question. We'll have to see. There there will be an answer to this. Um, but to what extent is this predictive? I mean, it's it's a great great title for him. Beating Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic, especially on that court, is uh, is no small feat. I'm not quite sure how that translates to best of five matches in Australia. Say, the biggest on the other side question of the world. is just. Yeah. How does that translate to a right. major? I mean, that was his. That's his one. Uh, you know, he's he did a little bit better towards the end of the season. So, 
hopefully for 2019 we'll see it. I, I'd also say to, to his credit, I think he knows deep down that this has been disappointing. Right. I mean, right. I think he's, you don't he's get not any, outwitted. You know, I don't think he's, he's trying not to fighting sort of, exactly, back and saying exactly. like, well, I've done this. So he's, right. he's, he's been very accepting and you feel like he um, at least understands what he has to do to get there. He may not be on the fast track there, but he, he gets it, I think. Can I make one of my tennis UFC comparisons? Sure. So uh, in, in UFC and cage fighting, you have these young fighters come out and sometimes they're terrific and they sort of fight with sort of devil may care abandon. They don't care. and They haven't been hit much and they just come out. The bell rings, the air horn goes off and they just start wailing away. Um, the trouble is that when they get into tougher fights, they're not quite sure how to pace themselves. And it's a new set. The neurochemistry changes. They're not quite sure how much to hold back, how much they need to have in the tank. It really benefits veteran fighters to have that experience and to know 10 minutes into this thing how much gas I need to have and how much to push and how much to hold back. I think best of five tennis has a lot of that same element. And if you know that the match is only going to be 90 minutes long, especially indoors, it's very easy just to sort of to go all out and uh, play play your hardest. When you're out there and you're saying, boy, I, I need to prepare myself here. I need to be resigned and realistic. This this could be a three-and-a-half-hour match in, in the heat. I think that's something that really benefits a Djokovic, a Federer, and a Nadal, who have had these battles. They know there are going to be some lulls in the match. They know how to leave some gas in the tank. And I worry with taking this back to Zverev. Um, I just think there's a huge difference that we don't always appreciate between best of three and... Uh, Best of five. Um, all right. This was a uh, this was a long podcast. I'm looking at the time here. We should wrap this up. We should wish everyone a uh, happy Thanksgiving. We um, are going to do a few more of these before the end of the year. We may have um, a standard uh, standby guest who's been on this show quite a few times. We may have a new guest. Uh, we did have a request to talk about the, uh, the new ITF tour, which uh, is replacing the sort of format in tennis, which is a big move in the sport. Um, for players sort of ranked 100 and below. We'll be talking about that. But uh, that will do it for today. Thanks, Jamie, as always. Appreciate Thank you. That. Good to have you back here in the studio. Oh, thanks. I'll uh, we'll try to stick around a while. Uh, thanks to Jimmy Arias, great guest. And thanks to you all for listening. Uh, we'll do it again in a week. If people were so inclined to uh, either order up this podcast or leave a review, where might they go? They can go on Apple Podcasts or wherever they go and order their, their podcast. Yeah. Very good. Uh, All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again in a week. Take care.